Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And depending on your listening timing and habits, you may perceive this as the podcast's return after a week's absence. But there was a podcast last week but only for a short while. Uh, If you downloaded it and listened in the first few hours last Monday, you probably have no idea anything was amiss. But if you didn't do that, you were probably wondering why there was no episode last week, uh, as the episode was pulled down with us and everyone on the Showtime team in agreement that we'd had some bad timing in terms of when we recorded this show. And the proper and sensitive thing to do was to remove the episode. And that should be understandable to anyone who is aware of the biggest news story everyone in boxing was tracking at the start of last week, the health of Kazakh super middleweight, Idas Yebosinoli. Yeah, as uh, Dan Raphael reported uh, after we'd interviewed Keith Idek of Boxing Scene for last week's pod and recorded and uploaded the whole episode, Yerbasinoli, following his Showtime Championship Boxing main event defeat to David Morrell, was taken to Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, and he suffered a brain bleed and was placed in a medically induced coma. On the podcast last week, we had no idea. And, you know, we didn't say anything to be embarrassed about, but the tone was just all wrong when a man was in a coma and we were focused purely on Morrell's victorious performance. You know, Kieran and I analyzed the fight, and then later in the show, our guest Keith spoke about it as well. There wasn't some quick and easy cut around, so the proper thing to do was to pull the podcast. And of course, our thoughts are with uh, Idos and his family at this time, and we wish only the very best for him and hope that he is able to pull through. Um, So look, here's what we've decided to do this week. With me traveling and watching polar bears in Manitoba, it wasn't exactly an easy week to line up a new interview. And there wasn't much need to really, when we still had about 80% of an excellent interview with Keith Eidek that most of our subscribers didn't hear last week and that covers topics that remain timely a week later. So we will be replaying a portion of that interview momentarily. Uh, Otherwise on the podcast, well, there just isn't much going on in boxing this week. No big fights to review, no big fights to preview um the boxing world has handed us lemons so we're getting creative and putting together the ultimate hodgepodge show and making our best attempt at lemonade for the listeners um we will have news reviews and previews we'll have my top five countdown that's five fighters i was slow to come around on but who eventually convinced me of their quality we'll play a game of make the match uh, and also, Eric and I will reveal what names ended up making our ballots for the International Boxing Hall of Fame as we sit here a couple of weeks out from this year's inductee announcements. And we'll also double back to the Hulu series Mike, which we discussed briefly when it premiered. And we've both watched the whole thing now, so we'll share our thoughts on that. But first, as promised, picking it up a few minutes in after we'd finished talking about the Minneapolis card, here is our interview with Boxing Scene's Keith Eidek. Last week... Crawford and Spence went back and forth on social media, blaming each other for negotiations for their fight falling apart. Obviously, it's a lot of he said, he said, uh, do you have a sense of what's real and who, if anyone, is most at fault here? And and just big picture, what does it say about the state of our sport that arguably the most anticipated fight to be made in 2022 didn't get made in 2022? You know, it's a huge disappointment for people who continue to, you know, the ever dwindling group of people that invest their time and money in this sport. It's a huge disappointment for them to not get this fight next to perhaps not get Ryan Garcia and tank Davis next. Although I have a little more optimism about that happening based on what I've been told over the last week or so, but you know, to not get these types of fights and then to continually be asked to plunk down money for pay-per-views that don't necessarily warrant that platform 
it just it gets frustrating and it's why the fan base has eroded to the degree that it has um you just hope that 2023 is particularly at the start of 2023 there's some reason for optimism for boxing fans because right now you'd be dejected going into december based on what's happened here um so you know there is there's plenty of blame to go around right but i would say this if i were terrence crawford and this dragged on for four or five months for whichever reasons it did. The bottom line is they did not have a deal. Uh, if I were him and someone came to me, there are a lot of rumors about what the guarantee is. Is it 10 million? Is I don't think it's 10 million, but let's just say it's 5 million. And uh, they've said, we're going to pay you $5 million to fight David Avenesian. And we're guaranteeing you that. And we're going to put half of that in escrow, which supposedly has happened that half of his money has been placed in escrow. So he knows there's real money there and, and he knows he can go forward with the event. Uh, even if he doesn't go forward with the event, I would presume that he would get the money that's been guaranteed so far. Uh, so there's a lot less risk involved in that uh, financially and physically in terms of the fight itself, because David Avenesian is a much easier opponent than Errol Spence. So if you're him and you're presented this deal to go fight David Avenesian on December 10th, in his mind, however naive it might be, in his mind, he thinks he's going to go beat up David Avenesian. And then Monday, you know, December 12th or whatever, his attorney is going to pick up the phone and say, OK, Al, let's, you know, let's start talking again. And of course, Errol Spence is going to have a fight on the books by then. And he'll have to win that fight for them to re-engage in negotiations. But the one thing I would say, if if Terrence Crawford and his people think that they're going to do what they just did to Al Heyman and then just resume negotiations like nothing happened. Well, good luck because uh, if it were me uh, and I understand he felt wrong during the negotiations because he wasn't offered a guarantee. Although Errol Spence says he was not working off of a guarantee either, which is just completely bonkers in, in, in boxing. I mean, to work off no guarantee for a fight that big, I mean, $0 guaranteed is, is crazy. Um, but if they were both operating without a guarantee, I mean, it evens the playing field a little bit, but the bottom line is from a business perspective, even if you're the, the staunchest supporter of PBC and Al Heyman, if someone guarantees you, let's just say $5 million to fight David Avenesian, and you're being offered zero guarantee to fight Errol Spence, I could see the perspective of Terrence Crawford to say, let me go fight him, come back and see what's going on with the Spence fight. Um, and again, we'll see what happens and how that actually plays out. But I get it from a financial perspective. What do you know also about these BLK Prime people that they've not only doing Crawford Avenesian, um, they've apparently signed Adrian Bronner to a three fight deal. So does that mean the fact that they've done that mean that they'll be bankrupt very soon? I mean, do you know anything else about them at all? Who are these people? I don't know why you would invest in a three fight deal with Adrian Bronner at this point, based on him just having pulled out of a Showtime main event in August. Uh, the week of the fight. Um, right. uh, they're trying to make a splash. We've seen this before, guys. We've been involved in boxing a very long time, and people come in with grandiose plans and supposedly lots of money, and almost always it doesn't work out. So, of course, we're all going to be skeptical about what they're doing. Give them a chance. That There are a lot of people, you know, some people with uh, ulterior motives or agendas who have been telling me for three weeks, basically, that there's no way that this event moves forward. You have to understand their skepticism based on what BLK media has accomplished in boxing so far, which is nothing. Um, 
but you have to give them a chance and see how the event works out. I don't, if they've guaranteed Terrence Crawford $5 million, let's just say, let's just use that as a number and whatever they've guaranteed uh, David Avenesian, it would then be somewhere between five and $6 million and they're charging roughly $40 for pay-per-views. Well, you're going to have to sell a heck of a lot of pay-per-views and do very well at the gate in a, in a market that is, is a place where you can't charge a lot of money for tickets. And to their credit, they smartly price the tickets for this event, but you're going to have to make, you're going to have to do a, a good buy rate on pay-per-view and you're going to have to do a pretty substantial gate to get your money back. Uh, one thing we've learned about Terrence is he's a, he's a ticket seller in Omaha. There are no two ways about that, but he is not a pay-per-view draw. Um, especially in the instances when he hasn't had a B side that people know uh, the Amir Khan fight did better than the Victor Postal fight, but not as well as they thought, certainly not based on the guarantees that they offered those two fighters. And even the Sean Porter fight, which ESPN and top rank made a mistake, I thought, in the way that they distributed that fight by only by limiting it to ESPN plus. I think you, you know, you bit into your buy right there. But uh, but none of his pay-per-view events have been successful in terms of what he's been paid or what he's been guaranteed. So um I don't think that this would be all that different. The, the price point is interesting because it's at least $30 less than most of his pay-per-views have been, or, you know, $25, $30 less than they've been. So maybe it'll do a little better, but uh, you, you always have to be skeptical to guys when a company uh, moves into the sport and tries to do a pay-per-view when they don't have any experience in doing that. It's You have to know how to market these events, how to distribute these events the right way. And if you don't, you're asking for trouble. None of this is sustainable, is it? We've got Andy Ruiz and uh, Luis Ortiz on pay-per-view doing 65,000 buys. Deontay Wilder doing 75,000 buys. You have this situation with these BLK Prime guys. Um, you know, to follow on from everything you've been saying about fans having to shell out money for fights they shouldn't have to, big fights falling through. It's not sustainable, is it? Or are we just just another chapter in the whole boxing is going to continue to shoot itself in the foot and muddle along. And because it has a dedicated fan base, they'll still be there and it'll all still keep going. You know, the pay-per-view model has always been a problem for people who don't want to pay. You know, you don't want to build boxing pay-per-views into your monthly budget. So it's frustrating as a boxing fan because you don't want to continue paying these prices. So for the longest time, it's always been perceived as the problem of the boxing fan that they have to figure out how to navigate. Well, they have figured out how to navigate it. The, many of the fans who are left and they steal it. They, they figure out what they have. Piracy is such a problem that the, that most people have figured out ways to, to steal the signal. It's almost impossible to properly police it because it would it's not cost effective to hire the army of people that you would need to shut down. It's just not possible. It's not physically possible. And it's again, it's not worth the amount that it would cost to do that. So now, whereas before it was the problem of the consumers who didn't want to pay the price, it's now the problem of the people running the industry and the fighters, because I think that's a, a big reason why Spence Crawford didn't come together. Spence uh, Crawford's perspective was, if you want me to work off of a guarantee, uh, you don't want, excuse me, you don't want me to work off of a guarantee. Well, my percentages are going to have to be as such where I'm going to make a lot of money on the back end. But you have this enormous problem where you can't make the kind of money that you should make off the pay-per-view because more than half of the people are stealing it. And if you just say to the fighter, well, you just have to bet on yourself and, you know, we don't really know how to police it and it's not really our problem. Well, it kind of is your problem. Right. 
And if I were fighting and I were not being offered a guarantee and you couldn't figure out a way to make it up for me on the back end by paying me what I'm worth, well, then you're at a standstill. And that may be where I'm not saying that's the entire reason why this fight didn't happen, but it's a real problem now because the pay-per-view model is broken in virtually every way from the consumer standpoint, from the promoter standpoint, from the network standpoint, from the distribution standpoint, it's a broken model. And, and the market value of the fighters is probably artificial. Um, but if you've been a fighter for a long time and you, if you're Terrence Crawford and you've been making guarantees of 4 million, 6 million uh, to fight much lesser guys than Errol Spence, well, you're going to want it, uh, more than that, obviously, to fight him. How, how would you look at it any other way? And the same goes for Spence. You would want more to fight Terrence Crawford than, than you're going to make to fight Sean Porter is very good, but you would want more to fight Crawford than, than Porter or Ugas. Yeah. Um, all right. Changing subjects. So I, I want to ask you a couple questions about Tyson Fury. Um, first, I don't know if you saw that Fury was recently inter- interviewed by a British YouTuber who calls himself the true Jordy, um, who pressed him on, on why he was facing Derek Chisora for a third time and while, mm-hmm. why he piled far less public pressure on Chisora to agree to a fight than he did with Anthony Joshua. And Fury responded with a very Fury-esque foul-mouthed rant and uh, concluded by saying he'd never do an interview with the guy again. I wonder, now that boxers increasingly have the option to only talk with friendly outlets, and, and now that boxing journalism, and I'm using scare quotes there, largely consists of fans with smartphones, have you noticed extra resistance to any kind of slightly pressing questioning when you get to interview boxers? Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. I'll say that. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of people don't like criticism. And in today's day and age, it, especially covering this sport, uh, they Boxers have become increasingly sensitive toward any sort of criticism because there is a lot of fanboyism in covering the sport. If that's what you're looking for, I'm not your guy. There's several others that cover this sport. They're not going to be your guys either. Now, I think it's extremely important that when you're critical and you're and you're analyzing the sport, that you do it in a fair and professional (laughs) way. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always felt that way. I, I, I always like to look at it like I would not write something or tweet something that I would not say to someone's face that might get, get you punched in the face. Maybe I guess at some point, <laughs> but I would like to look at it that way because I do think that people go overboard, especially with the anonymity on Twitter and on other platforms and everything. I think people, you know, should be respectful of people who do this for a living because um, I know you guys feel the same way. You have to have respect for anyone, even the worst fighter in the world who walks up those steps. It takes, you know, it takes huge balls to do that. So um, so I think I'm always mindful of that. I always try to be that way, but, I, but I also have a job to do and it's not an easy job sometimes. Um, and I find more and more that people are, uh, are overly sensitive, I think. Um, and again, if you're being criticized or analyzed in a fair way, I think you should do so, some of your own self-reflection. And, and that goes for all of us. If someone says to me, well, I didn't like the way that you wrote that story or, I think you kind of miss this angle a little bit in your column or something like that. I might disagree with them, but I should be receptive to having a constructive conversation with them about that. And I, and my phone's always open. I tell people that I deal with all the time. If you have an issue or whatever, please don't hesitate to call or text me 
Now, if you're going to call and start cursing, you know, I'm going to hang up probably. But I, but at the same time, I think you owe that to the people that you cover and that you're trying to cover in an objective way. Um, but I, again, I the, people are overly sensitive now. And if you want people to write press releases, there are plenty of people you can hire to do that. And they do. But that's not... That's not what I'm trying to do for a living. And until I'm told otherwise, that's the way I'm going to go about it. Cause I, you know, as a newspaper reporter for two, almost two and a half decades. And, and um, I just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a different environment at ringside now because I just look around and I'm like, it, it's troublesome in the sense that, you know, my livelihood is invested in this sport and there's an ever dwindling, uh, interest in covering this sport, certainly from, um, you know, real outlets, so to speak. I mean, there's less newspaper, not that newspapers are the be all and end all anymore, but there's less mainstream coverage of this sport. And I think sometimes the sport can't, in general can't get out of its own way in that they just don't make people want to cover it because there's just so much nonsense involved in it that makes no sense. And there are so many people protecting their own interests the Spence Crawford fight is a perfect example, guys. There's no reason for this fight not to be happening. There's just zero reason for this fight not to be happening next. Maybe the fighters would have to sacrifice a little bit on their end financially, um, but there's no reason they shouldn't have just all come together and make this fight next. It's it's one of the best, very best fights, that you, maybe the best fight that you could make in boxing. It's two undefeated welterweight champions, and I don't know if Crawford's still in the prime. He's 35 years old. He hasn't taken much punishment or anything, but he is 35. But they're, you know they're two of the top five pound for pound fighters in the sport. And when you can't make a fight like that happen, it makes people from the outside look at the sport and say, what are these people doing? Like, well, it's ridiculous. You know, even if it, and this is a fight where if it costs 80 or 90 bucks, certain people are just going to steal it anyway, but but people would have been willing to pay for it. And, and now here we are with Crawford against Avenisian and, and Errol Spence probably against Keith Thurman, which is not a terrible fight and their rivals and all that stuff, but not what we want. Well, maybe maybe you'll make me feel a little better about another fight that we really want, or maybe you won't. I'm not sure. But uh, (laughs) let's assume that Tyson Fury gets past Chisora yet again. Does the path then look clear for a unification with Oleksandr Usyk early in 2023? What's your level of optimism there? You would hope so, assuming both guys genuinely do want the fight. And I, I can't see why they wouldn't. Because, you know, who wouldn't want to be the fully unified heavyweight champion? And, and while Tyson Fury has been a champion for quite some time at two times, he has never been the fully unified champion. You would think he would want that on his resume um, and, and as part of his legacy. And of course, Usyk, you would think, would want it, too. And, and so I can't see why the fight wouldn't happen. It's unfortunately for everyone, it's probably going to happen in the Middle East or some, you know, someplace like that. Uh, but I think it will happen next year. So, and I look. I can't see based on the the outcomes of their first two fights, Tyson Fury not beating the crap out of Derek Chisora again. I mean, right. Chisora has no look to your earlier point, Eric, when you were saying that he was being criticized. Um, Tyson Fury has become so popular now in the UK, which is what he always wanted, that they put tickets for this fight on sale and they sold 50,000 plus 50,000 plus tickets very quickly. It's a terrible fight. It shouldn't be happening. But the Brits are so supportive of boxing, which is something we should be sort of jealous here in the United States of that because they just they just show up. Yeah. You know, they show up, they drink, they have a grand old time. And if Tyson Fury's fighting Derek Chisora or Mahmoud Char or whomever he was going to fight, they don't seem to care. 
which is amazing. But but here people care. They have so many other options. They care, you know. There's drinking and fighting involved. You'll always get fifty thousand. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Meanwhile, over here, the one boxer who seems to be attracting plenty of eyeballs and making tons of money is someone who still hasn't actually faced another boxer. Um, six fights and a couple of years in, what's your take on the Jake Paul phenomenon? Does he deserve credit for the fact that he's clearly working at his craft? And, and how long do you think this whole thing can continue? Does he have to, at some point, start facing actual real boxers? Or can he continue on this path of facing retired MMA fighters for a while? Yeah, Kieran, I give him credit for, for doing this because he is investing a lot of time and a lot of money into actually learning this craft the right way. And he's training the right way. And he has a whole training team behind him and a nutritional team. So he's going about it in the right way. And I would say that he is getting better. He's not good, but he's getting better. You know, to, to hear him say things like I'm going to fight Canelo Alvarez and stuff drives me a little nuts because it's silly. But but the, he's a tough kid. The thing I would give him the most credit for, he's a very smart, savvy businessman. They've, they've created this, this business model that did not exist. It's successful. And to answer your other question, they can continue doing this for as long as he remains undefeated because their MMA fans are invested in this enough that they're going to keep coming back. He's probably going to fight Nate Diaz next. So they'll do well with that fight because Nate Diaz is a legendary, you know, not as good or successful as Anderson Silva, but he, but a, but a well-known popular UFC fighter, they have this little rivalry now. So that would probably be the next fight. Say he beats Nate Diaz, which he probably would, um, you know, then maybe he fights Tommy Fury and he fights twice next year. And there's still some Tommy Fury is not a good boxer at all. Um, but he is a quote unquote real boxer. And that is something that people have demanded or a certain segment of people have demanded of Jake Paul to fight a real boxer. Now, that real boxer is not as good as Anderson Silva. So I don't know if, what that, if that matters, but to some people it might, you know, if he's going to fight him. And just like when he was going to fight Asim Rockman Jr. Asim Rockman Jr. is, you know, well, yeah, he's the son of a former heavyweight champion and all that. His own father said that he's a disappointment as a professional boxer. He doesn't train the right way. He doesn't, hasn't gone about things in a way that will make him successful, no matter how much talent he may or may not have. Uh, so, Beating those types of guys, I don't know. It would answer some critics because they are technically they're real boxers. Uh, but those are the. But also, I don't think it's fair to criticize him the way that some people have. In that, well, he, he has no amateur boxing background, and he now has six fights. Who is he supposed to fight? And yeah, he's putting it on pay per view because he has a huge built in fan base that he arrived in boxing already having. And then he brings the MMA community into it. So it's like this anomaly that we'll, pro we'll probably never see again. Uh, but it's, just, it's a relatively successful business model. I was there last week and there were 14,000 plus people in the building. Now, when I look around in that crowd, do I see the kind of people who were going to watch David Morrell fight last night? Uh, I, I don't know that. I'm not convinced of that. But if they can come up also from a boxing perspective of some tangible evidence that Jake Paul's existence in this sport, whether it's a, for another year or another three years or whatever it is, creates a couple thousand boxing fans. Well, then it will have been a success, even from Showtime's perspective, because they're not using their boxing budget. They're not using the money that Paramount Global is investing in this sport and taking it away from real fights to do business with Jake Paul. They're just distributing the fights. They're, 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 that's it. So it's not tapping into their budget. So boxing fans have no real reason. If you don't like it, just ignore it. That's what a lot of people are doing, right? But a lot of people are buying it and 
a lot of people are ignoring it and you know i don't i haven't taken as as a you know what what they refer to me as on twitter like you know the crusty old curmudgeon box whatever they <laughs> whatever stuff they've come up with but uh old boxing media or whatever they say i really haven't taken as much offense to it i don't love it from a boxing perspective but uh but i don't i'm not offended by it i mean you know if it again if it were taking money away from other boxers getting real fights it would bother me more but that's not what's happening keith Thanks a lot, brother. We really appreciate it. Um, I know you're sitting in a hotel waiting for the opportunity to go to the airport and catch your flight home. So uh, we do appreciate you putting some time aside and chatting to us. Of course, always, always, guys. Always a pleasure to be on with you guys. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Always great talking to you. Uh, Thanks again to uh, Keith for um, two interviews in in one, really. (laughs) He's the first guy to ever get a replay. So well done. (laughs) We'll bring him back. Let's talk about this past weekend's in-ring action. And it won't take long. There wasn't anything resembling a major fight, but there were a few minor ones. Uh, here are the notable results. Uh, on Friday, flyweight titleist Sonny Edwards retained his title by a competitive unanimous decision over Felix Alvarado in Sheffield, England. Staying in England, the next night in Manchester, women's super welterweight titleist Natasha Jonas won a wide decision over Murray Eve de Kerr, while Ricky Hatton and Marco Antonio Barrera went all eight two-minute rounds in an exhibition, neither trying too hard to hurt the other. Uh, in Las Vegas on ESPN Plus on Saturday night, middleweight belt holder Yanabek Alem Kanuli struggled more than most expected and went the distance with Denzel Bentley, but did win a clear-cut unanimous decision. Uh, and on that undercard, Sinisa Estrada won by shutout of a Yasmin Gala Fiorino. An 18-year-old Emiliano Vargas, the youngest fighting son of Fernando Vargas, scored a highlight reel one-punch KO in the second round against Julio Martinez. But if there's a result worth exploring in a little depth, it's the one upset of the weekend. 140-pound up-and-comer Montana Love losing by sixth-round disqualification in his hometown of Cleveland against Australian Stevie Spark. Uh, there was also an upset on the undercard with another showbox alum, Thomas Matisse, handing Christian Tapia his first loss. Plus, Richardson Hitchens dominated Yomar Alamo and won by TKO8. Eric, I'm sure you have thoughts on the Spark-Love controversy. Uh, please do weigh in on that and anything else. Yeah, I do have thoughts on Spark versus Love. That was fascinating. Um, both the fight and the 15 minutes or so of bickering that followed between referee David Fields, the Ohio Commission representative, Eddie Hearn, Montana Love, Love's trainers. Um, first, let's note that Spark really came to win. Uh, he, he dropped Love with a right hand in the second round. Love recovered and was outboxing Spark in spots, but Spark had another big round in the fifth. It was a close, interesting, at times ugly, at times exciting fight through five rounds. Then in round six, they clashed heads, standard lefty versus righty stuff, and Love was cut and a bit rattled, and he told the doctor he was having trouble seeing. They could have stopped the fight right then and gone to the cards, but I would imagine Love knew that he was at best even on the cards, quite possibly behind, so he wanted to fight on, and the doctor took the unusual approach of saying, I'll watch you for a minute and see how you're doing. Um... Well, he didn't get a minute to watch him. Only about uh, 10 (laughs) seconds after the fight resumed, the two fighters got tangled and Love thought he was in a battle royal and went for the -the over-the-top rope elimination. Uh, (laughs) Spark impressively landed on his feet outside the ring. uh, But uh, before he'd even landed, Ref Fields was uh, immediately calling for the DQ. Watching the replay numerous times, It is right on that borderline between intentionality and accident. Um, I guess I lean toward 
Love was frustrated and he intentionally got dirty and intentionally flung him, but he probably didn't mean to toss him clean out of the ring. Um, Hearn and Love say that they'll file a protest. On the one hand, Fields reacted very quickly. He might have done something differently if he just paused and thought for a couple of seconds, maybe take a point and let the fight go on. I'm not sure. But at the same time, I don't think this decision is going to change under protest. Uh, the DQ was not unreasonable. And it all just screams for a rematch. They got to do it again and clear it up. Um, but, you know, Spark is a pretty good fighter. He, he lost badly to Tim Zhu, but that was two divisions out of his natural weight class. At 140, he could be a real contender. Um, the other stuff from this weekend... Yeah, Janabek didn't look great. This was a kind of a slow your roll moment for a lot of people with him. Mm. Um, he scored nice KOs against a few B and C level guys and uh, fell in love with his power, it seems. Buddy McGirt has some work to do there. Um, and I'll, I'll just say on Emiliano Vargas, great left hook KO. Word on the street is that he's the best fighter among Fernando's kids, that he's the one most likely to actually be going places. So I'm definitely keeping an eye on him. He's only 2-0, and but... If he's the real deal, he will have enormous star potential. Uh, it doesn't get much better next weekend. Uh, the relative highlights of the schedule on the zone from Guadalajara, Mexico, Jaime Munguia against Gonzalo Correa. Also on the zone from Austin, Texas, a four-rounder, Asim Rachman Jr. against MMA fighter Vitor Belfort. And from Telford, England on ESPN+, Anthony Yard takes a tune-up against Stephanie Koykov. Uh, that's about it, Eric. If you can squeeze more than 60 seconds of analysis out of all three fights combined... <laughs> I'll be impressed. Uh, all right. You want to start a timer? Uh, I, I, don't sure. li- I, don't, I don't like my chances, though. <laughs> I, I might have liked my chances to go 60 seconds if I hadn't gone off on Munguia versus Coria a couple of weeks ago when it was announced. <laughs> right. But I don't think anyone needs a rerun of that. Um, Munguia's year has been wasted, and I'm not entirely sure why. Rockman Jr., Clearly, he's leaning into the sideshow thing and not the yep. serious boxing <laughs> trying to become a contender thing, uh, which which, you know, that's fine. He wasn't likely to become a contender, so may as well make whatever the best paydays he can find uh, that are out there. Um, and this does indeed look like a tune up for Yard before he serves as a tune up for Arthur Betterbeev. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there is nothing next weekend. I'll be making a point to watch live and spoiler free. So uh, where am I on the timer? Did I make 60 seconds? Yeah, ish. <laughs> All right, then I'll take it as a victory ish. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's get to the news. And of course, the most important news is what we opened the show with about Idos Yerbasanuli. Otherwise, just about all the notable news this week comes out of the annual WBC convention. And you know I hate nothing more than to mention the name of an alphabet group or to discuss its <laughs> rankings. But the sanctioning body did make several rulings that could impact upcoming matchmaking. So let's discuss the more important ones. The David benavidez Caleb Plant fight, which is reportedly happening in March, determines a mandatory challenger for Canelo Alvarez. Sebastian Fundora and Tony Harrison have been ordered to negotiate a fight, and they said they would, with the winner becoming the mandatory to the winner of Jermel Charlo versus Tim Zhu. Errol Spence has been ordered to face Keith Thurman. Devin Haney was ordered to defend his lightweight title against Vasily Lomachenko. And the Alphabet Group also ordered an unlikely-to-happen fight between Shakur Stevenson and Isak Cruz to determine the next mandatory challenger. And if and when Noya in a way vacates his bantamweight belt, Nonito Denaire and Jason Maloney are to face off for the vacant title. Kieran, lots to discuss there. If enough of those matchups come off, boxing could get off to a great start in 2023. What catches your eye? 
pretty much all of them, to be honest. Um, the only one that leaves me feeling meh is Spence Thurman, which is unfair to Thurman, really. And it's as much right. a function of Spence Crawford having been so tantalizingly close until it wasn't. Um, right. I don't know that it would fill me with too much excitement anyway. I much prefer Spence against Boots Ennis, but, you know, maybe Boots could stand to wait another fight or so before taking on either of the big dogs in, in that division. Um, the funny thing is, though, listening to you go through those, on the one hand, you're tempted to say for once, yay to the WBC for ordering these matchups, but the best ones were already in the works anyway, right? right. Like Haney, Haney Lomachenko was already going to happen. Mm. Spence Thurman was probably already going to happen. Right. I do like like Fandora Harrison, I think we talked about that as a possibility on the podcast yeah. uh, as a fight we'd be interested in seeing Sebastian take on. I, I think it's an extremely difficult fight for both guys, actually. Um, I like the Benavidez plant winner being a mandatory for Canelo as long as A, it's Benavidez. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, B, Canelo gives a shit about his mandatories. <laughs> right. Um, and C, the WBC ever tells him what to do. Uh, right. I'm not sure either. B or C are too likely. Um, <laughs> so, all in all, yeah, I, I, it's an excellent group of matchups, but some are going to happen anyway. We'll see if the others do. And I reserve a healthy degree of skepticism about the promised mandatory title shots that, that are supposed to come out of some of these. Right. Yeah. You, you hit on the key thing there, which is that Canelo calls his own shots. No, exactly. No, no, nobody gets to decide who's who he's fighting except for him. So exactly. uh, it's not, it's not going to be Caleb Plant no matter what happens between now and then. Right. Um, at the risk of continuing to talk about the WBC, there are two other noteworthy rulings came from the convention, uh, which may or may not burn your ridicule, Eric. Uh, the sanctioning group is removing all Russian and Belarusian fighters from its rankings in protest of the ongoing Russian assault on Ukraine. And 31 years after a controversial draw with Azuma Nelson in a title fight, Jeff Fennick was awarded a super featherweight belt retroactively, making him now at least according to the Alphabet Group, a four-division title holder. Uh, Eric, what do you make of those moves? I, I guess the nicest thing I can say about Mauricio Suleiman and, and the rest of the gang on this stuff is I appreciate the sentiment. You know, it's it, it's nice for Jeff Fennec, and it's right. nice to want to support Ukraine. I think you are aware that a but is coming. Um, <laughs> the, the stuff about not ranking Russian fighters it's purely for show. Like, you know, if, if Russia is barred from the Olympics, maybe Putin kind of feels that. If Russian boxers don't get ranked, it ain't making a bit of difference. But also, it's very convenient that there are zero star fighters from Russia or Belarus in the WBC's rankings to really suffer here. Um, they don't rate Dmitry Bivol because he has a different organization's belt. If he had their belt, I'm not at yeah. all convinced this ruling would have been made. Um, Artur Beterbiev, his nationality is listed as Canadian because that's where he lives. So he's good to go. Um, there are a few Russian fighters in the rankings, but nobody who was about to be fighting for one of their titles, nobody who's a major cash cow. This is basically pandering. And again, I approve of the sentiment, but it, it rings hollow. They're just trying to score points. They get zero points from me, as usual. Um, and they get <laughs> negative points from me for this Fennec nonsense. This yeah. sets an awful precedent awful yeah. you you can't overturn a decision after the fact maybe immediately after a fight if you investigate and and you find some corruption you, or so, you, you can rule it a no contest or whatever immediately thereafter fine but 31 years later um yeah. you know so, so so now you've decided fennec won and, and you've decided that means he was the quote-unquote champion 
how much you want to bet Suleiman hasn't given Azuma Nelson a ring? Uh, oh, yep. hi, buddy. I uh, just wanted to let you know your record is not 39-6-2 anymore. It's 39-7-1. and Because, um, you know, if you're officially saying now that Fennec won and that he was the champ, then you can't also say Nelson keeps the draw on his record. I, I assume that record-keeping organizations like BoxRec or like the Hall of Fame, that they will right. ignore this nonsense. I pray that Ed Brophy isn't out there updating Fenix plaque in Canastota to say four-division champion. But I will note, I had to look. I was curious. Wikipedia has been updated. It, it, now, uh. it now includes this. So, look, we live in a world where nothing is fact-checked, and uh, we know how easy it is to convince some people of facts that aren't facts. Um, but, you know, BoxRec does still call it a draw. It was a draw, uh, and uh, anyone in the media who lends any credibility to this decision by the WBC, you're making a mockery of the history of the sport, and you're just opening a massive can of worms. Like, do you want no decision in boxing to ever truly be final? Yeah. If, if, yeah. if so, then by all means, go along with this BS. But uh, yeah. yeah, as you can tell, this one really has me pissed. We, we, we don't just get to all make up our own facts. <laughs> but you are in the wrong country. Um, <laughs> Not this week. This, this, week. this week our country did okay. <laughs> That's right. And and it's odd, like why now and why that fight? Uh, I mean, it's just peculiar. What's going to come next? Uh, agreed. It is. It is classic classic pandering for whatever reason right yes um all right there i, I want to mention one last news item that uh, that caught my eye on fight news um this is only relevant to me but um shenard <laughs> bunch uh showbox alum will face former contender hank lundy on december 9th at the newtown athletic center which is about a mile and a half from my house I, so i can actually walk to a real live professional wow. boxing match i will not however I will not walk. I will not attend at all because the owner of the Newtown Athletic Center is a hardcore MAGA Trumper who spent the last few months polluting our whole town with giant Oz signs. Uh, time and money well spent there. Yeah. Huh? Um, and no time or money will be spent by me to attend this boxing card. There you go. Um, voting with your feet and your wallet. I like that. <laughs> yes, um, there you go. And, and I do like, to, to your point, I'm, I'm not in the U.S. but at the moment, but I do <laughs> like the fact I I was nervous last week. But, oh um, yes, we all were. Yes, but yay, parts of America. Um, <laughs> there you go. Maybe maybe you know maybe you just need to leave the country more often. Maybe that you know. You would not be the first to suggest that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, let's talk about some voting of a different kind. Uh, we had to submit our ballots for the International Boxing Hall of Fame by October 31st. We will know the results in a few weeks, but no harm in the interim. Uh, Eric and I revealing who we voted for, at least in the men's moderns category, which covers mailboxes, whose last bout was no earlier than 1989. So um, who wants to go first? You, me? How are we going to do this? Um, why don't you go first? List... I... So I don't know that if whether you have yours in an in an order of some kind. If you kind of want to go from your slam okay. dunkiest to least slam, like the one you were yeah. most confident. Okay, so you name your first, and then I'll either tell you he was on my list uh, that I voted for, or if not, okay. name my first. We'll kind of bounce back and forth. Who who okay. who I, was your I, your top pick? Well, I I know this is yours too. Um, it's Rafa Marquez. Okay, yes, we um, we are in agreement. Yeah. Yeah, um, we've talked about this privately. We've talked about this publicly. Uh, he's missed out for far too many years. Former bantamweight titleist, super bantamweight champion, victories over the likes of Tim Austin and Mark Johnson, 
that epic series with Israel Vasquez, 37 KOs and 41 wins, which is almost unheard of for somebody at those lower weight divisions. Um, yeah, it, look, if he doesn't get in next year, this year, I, I don't know what the hell is the matter with people, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm not confident that, that he will, but he, for me, was the easiest pick. But um, the, the the next two that I that were in my order are, I think, the two that I'm most confident actually will get in. So I'll, I'll just name my next mm-hmm. two at okay. once now. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause again, I, f- these ones, I kind of think we are likely to have in common beyond this. We might not. Um, but I think Tim Bradley and Carl Frotch are both worthy yep. hall of famers. If, if, you know, borderline ish, not slam dunk, but, sure. but worthy. And I think the most likely to actually get the votes among everyone on the yep. ballot this year, just well-known, well-respected, quality yeah. resumes, fought enough real big fights, had enough success at the top of the sport in high profile enough fights that they're going to get the votes. And in my view, deserve the votes, certainly among this group of nominees, they, they deserve the votes, I think. Yeah, agreed. And actually it was, you know, when I sat down to sort of have a remind myself of exactly what they've done, it's when you list out some of what both of those guys did that you realize, yeah, these guys, they might not sail over the bar, but they clear the bar, I think. Um, these are two guys where I feel they should be in the Hall of Fame. I also did vote for, for both of them. Like you said, okay. they're a little bit fringy. But yeah, I, I, I definitely think they should they should go in. Um, uh, to remind folks, three will be elected. Right. But you can vote for up to five. I did vote for five. Okay. Um, those three are the ones that I feel should be in. The other two... I'm almost already having some bias remorse over <laughs> a little bit. I, I, I didn't have tremendous conviction about either of them. Um, if you want to tell me that either of them aren't Hall of Famers, I'm not going to fight you over it, and I'm not going to be upset if they don't go in. Um, I'll, I'll give you both of them. They're okay. very different boxers. Uh, Ivan Calderon and Michael Mora. Um, hmm. To take Mora first, you know... None of his four losses hold up well. You know, obviously there was the George Foreman fight. There was the five knockdown stoppage to Holyfield. The first round battering by David to, and then losing to Alicio Castillo of all people. But he did have some wins at heavyweight. And even though he was never the true light heavyweight champion, his light heavyweight, his skills and performances are light heavyweight. What really kind of swung it for me. And yeah, and I felt reasonably okay with putting him on the ballot, but afterwards I thought, mm, I don't know, it might be a bit too fringy. Uh, Calderon, I feel a bit more comfortable. Um, I have voted for him before, but I'm starting to lose the argument with myself a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, he, the, the the case for is that he held a title at 105 pounds for four years, won a title at 108, held that for three years, and was a beautiful boxer. The biggest knock on him is he didn't attempt to unify his 105 pound title, mm-hmm. and he didn't try to unify his 108 pound belt until his 36th or 37th bout out of 39, and then he was knocked out. Um, so I voted for him. In other years, I haven't voted for him. I would not be at all aggrieved if he went in, but I also will not cry foul if he doesn't. Right. Interesting. So Moore is one of those ones who I didn't really put much thought into, but maybe I should have. Maybe maybe, maybe the, the losses and, and sort of the underperformance and sense that he didn't have the same hunger at heavyweight that he did at light heavyweight, maybe that was 
weighing a little too heavily in my mind and I'm underrating and under undervaluing how good a light heavyweight he was. Um, mm. And, and so I, I didn't really give him much consideration, but maybe that's on okay. me to for next year to think a little deeper about Michael Moore Calderon. He's one that I have spent time thinking about, and I've just always felt his resume is very overrated. Uh, the, yeah. the strawweight reign really is what bothers me, that he, he fought nobody in that strawweight reign, and his pound-for-pound pound status at the time was, to me, largely a creation of Dan Raphael telling everyone how great Iron Boy <laughs> was. Um <laughs> It's not that I can't stomach him getting into the Hall of Fame someday. He had a fine career. It's more that I'll be pissed if he gets in ahead of a bunch of other fighters on this ballot that sure. I consider more worthy. So uh, the the other two that I included, although I'm kind of like you with, with Moore and Calderon, that I don't feel strongly about these two, that I think they were just the next best of the bunch, are Joel Casamayor and mm. Gennaro Hernandez. Um, yeah. I've voted for Gennaro in the past a few times. Whenever he's on a ballot without too many slam dunks, I tend to vote for him. Um, Casamayor, I th I think he's decidedly underrated. I mean, they're mm. both they're both very borderline Hall of Famers, no doubt. But really, everyone on the ballot is for me after Marquez. Yeah. He's <laughs> Rafael yeah. Marquez is the only guy on this ballot I feel 100% with conviction belongs in the Hall of Fame. Um, like I considered Diego Corrales, but to me, Casamayor should go in before Corrales does. Um, like Ricky Hatton is another one that I, every year I give him a moment's thought and, and then land on not voting for him. Uh, Punxsuclack Wanjung Cam is another guy yep. who got some consideration from me. I could see voting for him someday. Israel Vasquez I thought about. Newcomer to the ballot, Michael Nunn, I thought about him. It, as I look back over this ballot and who I voted for, the degrees of separation between my second choice and like my 10th choice are pretty yeah. slim, really. Mm. Yeah, no, interesting. Those are both interesting ones. I, yeah, it's, I'm not quite sure what to think about, about Casamayor. He was actually at his peak, a really fine fighter, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I didn't really consider him a very great deal. There weren't too many others that I really gave a lot of thought to every time I kind of hum and ha a smidgen about both Nigel Benn and Chris Eubank. And I think neither can go in without the other. Mm. Uh, but then I move on. Right. And with most of the other folks, and again, none of this is to be disrespectful of those fighters. Everybody who's on that ballot had a terrific career. I was ringside for a lot of those fights, their fights, as were you. Is it a Hall of Fame kind of fighter, though, is, is a different matter. And yeah, I'm very much the same as you. This year, I, I definitely, Rafa Marquez definitely feel moderately strong about Tim Bradley and Carl Frotch, but not like I'm not going to get into a knockdown drag out fight with anybody about right. it. And if we only had three votes, I'd have been really happy with those three votes, right? I wouldn't have thought, oh, I can't believe I don't get a chance right. to vote for Michael Moore or Calderon <laughs> or Gennaro right. or anything like that. It's just one of those years after so many packed ballots. Right. For for what it's worth, I'm going to go on record with my prediction of, of who gets in. Okay. I think it's going to be Bradley and Frotch, as, as we said, that they seem the most likely. And I'm maybe I'm just predicting this to brace myself for disappointment, <laughs> but I'm going to predict that Rafa does not get in and that instead your your guy Calderon does. I just it feels like whenever I hear any anyone else random on a podcast or on Twitter or whatever discussing this ballot, 
everyone mentions Calderon's name as somebody who yeah. they're thinking about voting for or planning to vote for or whatever. That's kind of my guess is it, it'll be Tim Bradley, Carl Frotch, and uh, Ivan Calderon, but I, I hope to be wrong about that last one. He has become a bit of a hipster choice, hasn't right. he? Right, yes. Which is unfortunate because I've never wanted to be a hipster. <laughs> Good news, you're not. Thank other, you very other, much. other than your vote for Ivan Calderon. Maybe this is a tipping point. Aye, but but if I was one of the first ones, maybe I'm not a hipster. Maybe I'm a trendsetter or so. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> yes. Um, although there, there is one other category that I just want to talk about quickly here. Cause we, oh, had yes. sort of, we had sort of talked on, offline about how some of the categories we don't want to necessarily get into our votes because we know a lot of the people on the ballot, yeah. like observers, and why, why reveal who we voted for and thus uh, reveal who we didn't vote for. Um, but I do want to comment on those one category that I vote on that you don't, which is the women's mm-hmm. modern category. You, you still don't vote on that. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. So I'll just note that this year I voted for Sumaya Anani and Mary Jo Sanders, both mm-hmm. fine fighters. The ballot, the choices, it is get, getting thin in mm. a hurry. Mm. I've said this before, but I'm just going to say it again. I implore Ed Brophy cut it to one inductee a year in that category until the current era starts retiring. Yeah. There just isn't yeah. enough depth. Uh, these rather anonymous female fighters are going to get inducted every year until, you know, the Katie Taylor generation starts retiring. Yeah. Then it'll be strong enough to maybe do two a year, but uh, it's, it's getting problematic looking at that ballot. Yeah. I think I probably would have voted for Sumaya anyway. Yeah. I think, I think, I think she deserves to get in. Um, but yes, no, I agree with you. The next couple of years are going to be interesting. Yeah. All right. It's time for a round of Make the Match. Um, last time we did this, you gave me the tough decision of matchmaking for Gennady Golovkin at this point in his career. And now it's my turn to name a fighter for you. And it's someone who's coming off the first loss of his career. But it's a loss that greatly elevated and enhanced his standing in the game. You and I were among the very few to view Jermaine Ortiz as a legitimate challenger to Vasily Lomachenko. But perhaps the fact that nobody else gave him much of a chance or indeed any chance uh, helped make his reasonably strong performance and losing to Loma uh, recently grab people's attention that much more. So he's in an interesting position now. Mm-hmm. He's no longer undefeated, but he's in a stronger position than before. So where does he go from here? How do you capitalize on his improved standing while still helping him develop as a contender and making sure as best you can that A, he ends up challenging for a title and B is in the best possible position to win when he does. So as a matchmaker and as a fan, who would you pick for Jermaine Ortiz? Hmm. All right. This is really interesting. He is in an interesting position. He is clearly a talented enough fighter to compete with just about anyone, but not sure if he can beat the guys at the top. And so if, if I'm his actual manager matchmaker i do want to be careful not to get him his second loss in a row right unless you know there's a payday too good to say no to then then i put him right back in there with with the best guy that the you know if if a Devin haney made a multi-million dollar offer to jermaine ortiz maybe you can't say no but that's not the ideal i think you know so i'm basically i guess what i'm saying is i'm probably for his sake, steering clear of a Haney, a Javante Davis, mm-hmm. those kind of guys right now, just because the risk of two losses in a row would be very strong at that level. Yeah. Um, I'm looking down the right. Ra- I mean, the name that jumps right out to me, and I feel like we 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 pick on this guy a little bit, but George Cambosos has a name, yeah, and is a decent yeah. fighter, but not a great fighter, and and yeah. 
Ortiz, I would make a modest favorite against George Cambosis. And, you know, so he gets a former lineal champion on his resume if he wins that fight. I think from just a, a pure, I'm managing his career, I want him to score a big win, that would count as a big win. He could lose, but I, but I would mm-hmm. favor him enough that I think it's worth the risk. I'd probably go for someone like that. I mean, I'm looking a little further down the box rec rankings at lightweight, and there are like some semi-washed veteran types you could maybe yep. turn to instead, like maybe a Jorge Linares makes some sense. Uh, maybe Jermaine Ortiz could knock him out. Uh, I I don't necessarily want to see that for Linares, but, um, right. but it might make sense for Ortiz to get a guy like him uh, on, on your resume. Um, but, but I think all things considered, if I'm handling Jermaine Ortiz's career, my first choice right now would be George Camposas. Take another yep. big fight right off the Lomachenko fight and try to score a big win. As a fan, uh, I want to see uh, Jermaine Ortiz in something close to a 50-50 fight that I think will be entertaining. Uh, so if I'm just choosing who would I love to see him face next, you know what could be fun? How about Raleigh Romero? Those hmm. are, I think hmm. that's a pretty competitive matchup. Two talented guys, uh, both both coming off losses in step-up fights. I don't think Romero has had a, a tune-up win uh, to get back uh, since since he lost to Javante. Yeah. That'd be a really fun crossroads kind of, not crossroads, but sort of a um, two guys coming off a loss, but still, but both considered very credible. And the winner, I think, has something of a mandate for a big fight after that. Um, so that, that, you know, it's certainly risky for Ortiz. I actually, I would consider Raleigh Romero a riskier fight for him than George Cambosas. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, um, but I, I, as a fan, I think that could be real fun. So, so those are, those are my two picks. I think I'll go fan Raleigh Romero as his matchmaker. I'll go Cambosas. What do you think? Well, um, for a matchmaker, we're in complete agreement. I okay. absolutely think that Cambosas makes a lot of sense for both guys, honestly, because Cambosas, after two lopsided losses, will probably think that he can beat Ortiz and will think to himself, hey, I'd like to look good and beat the guy who pushed Lomachenko harder than anybody thought he would. That gives me my credibility back um, and I can beat that guy. Um, so uh, it just makes the most sense to me. At the same time, I was also the same as you. If he took a step back and took on like the the what the slightly washed veterans I was looking at were guys like Kid Galahad or mm. or or Jezreel Corrales, somebody like that. Um, the other ones I thought about as a fan, how about two guys who've had some pretty big upset wins lately? William Segura, uh, who had that win over Jojo Diaz, and Jeremiah Nakatia, who beat uh, Burchell. I thought they could be quite interesting and entertaining kind of who goes up a level kind of fights. Yeah, th- those are good. Um, yeah, uh, William Zapata Segura, he's... Uh, they're, they're both coming off good wins. And so, yeah, those are interesting. Raleigh Romero just kind of has my attention a little more. And I we know it. We know yeah. him a little better, but I, I think, yeah, any of those are good. You know, I mean, now that I'm looking at the rankings, there are a bunch of good sort of mid twenties, not quite at the superstar four princes level, but just below <laughs> that, there are a bunch of guys. This, this is a deep division at, at lightweight yeah. right now. And it's only going to get deeper when Shakur Stevenson arrives. And uh, yeah, it's yep. really interesting what's going on there. Uh, all right. Um, moving on. Uh, back in late August, K1 
Kieran and I watched and discussed the first two episodes of the Hulu series, Mike. Uh, within a few weeks, all eight episodes had dropped. Uh, we have both seen them all. Uh, so we figured we'd check back in and give a final review. I guess there are spoilers here, although I can't imagine listeners care too much right. if they haven't watched it at this point. But if you want to skip ahead five minutes, go ahead and skip ahead five minutes. Um, all in all... This was a series that I did not recommend to a single person in my life. But yeah. at the same time, I wouldn't say I regret watching it. It was fine. It was a, a C plus. Um, when we first talked about it, I vented about how I felt like they took on too much. You know, the, the, yep. the whole Tyson life story. It was a bad idea. This could have been better with a more singular focus. One whole season about Tyson and Cuss or one whole yeah. season about Tyson and Robin Givens. Let all the character development and the plot development and the dialogue breathe a little bit. Um, for me, the whole project got very complicated with the episode devoted to Tyson and Desiree Washington. Mm -hmm. For the writers and producers, this was kind of a no-win situation. Um, I'll note that, that Tyson, as far as I know, he continues to deny that he raped her. Um, he sticks with that line that he did other horrible stuff that he deserved to go to jail for instead. So he's at peace with how it all turned out. But he does still deny it. Um, I am inclined to believe her over him, but yep. only the two of them really know. The show presented it from her perspective. There was not much ambiguity. He was a monster. She was raped. Um, and that was clearly the less bad of the two options for how to angle the episode. Right. I would have been pretty darn grossed out if they'd presented it from Tyson's perspective where she's just some liar or something and he did nothing wrong. But in making the decision to present the episode this way, the protagonist of our series is shown doing something unforgivable. Yes. You know, it's it's not little anti-hero TV drama stuff that we can forgive, like Tony Soprano is an awful husband, but we still root for him when Steve Buscemi is betraying him or, or whatever, <laughs> you know? After this episode, I couldn't switch back into the mode of empathizing with Tyson or, or rooting for Tyson. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was really an impossible needle to thread, and they very much did not pull it off. They couldn't thread it. And so by the last couple of episodes, I was emotionally checked out of the show. I was just continuing to watch it because, you know, I've come this far and it's not totally boring. I may as well finish yeah. it. But um, bottom line for me, this whole series was a deeply flawed idea to try to make a TV show out of. In the end, it was almost impossible to make it really good given the approach that they took what, what, what did you think yeah i agree completely and i think it's interesting to compare it to the monzone series that we recapped right. a couple of years ago right with again great champion awful person who did an awful awful thing and i think there were two big differences there in that first of all it began with the very awful thing right. um and it ended with the very awful thing yes Right. Um, and in between unfolded not just his life story, but also the story of the guy who was trying to determine whether he had done the very awful thing. I felt like the ancillary characters in one zone were more developed, more fleshed out, especially the detective and, and all these other guys. Right. Whereas other people just kind of flit in and out of the the, the Tyson series um, a, a little bit. The only ones who you really linger with are like Ruth Roper, Robin Givens, Don King, all the 
all the ones who, at least from Mike's perspective, did him wrong. Right. Um, and I think the other framing thing that I didn't realize at first was going to be a problem, but in hindsight, I think it was, was the fact that the whole story was told by him in front of an adoring audience. Yeah. And that's where I think that disconnect that you were talking about with the De- well, I thought the Desiree Washington episode was very good. Um, but yes, I agree with you then afterwards. And there was a particular moment where I think in the following episode, he's talking to the audience and he's complaining about, oh, once again, the justice system, you know, isn't fair. And I'm like, dude, you raped a woman, right. you know, it's, you went to jail. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you there. It was, it was difficult once they'd made the choice to frame it that way. Like at least with Monzone, he could be portrayed throughout as an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and you knew you had the nuance that all the way through, they didn't shirk from the fact that he was a bad dude. Right. And it wasn't quite there with the type. It was all just very, I think the point that you made at the very beginning and you reiterated here that they took on too much, I think is exactly right. Um, eight 30 minute episodes is not enough to, to, to properly delve into the life of, of Mike Tyson. But as we also said, when we first talked about it, maybe for, there are so many people who didn't grow up with, with that story. Maybe that's all they needed was, uh, you know, that that's, they, they were talking to the people who didn't know who Tyson was. I don't know, but, but I thought the Monzone one was much more effective. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I had, hadn't really thought to go back and compare it in my mind to Monzone, but I think that's a great point that you make about, first of all, he's presented as as something of an anti-hero th- throughout because, you know, they set the tone from the start with this horrible thing to come that he did. But it's also just interesting that you point out that they, we build to that and, and it ends with that. So we don't have to then continue watching him and, and reckon with it afterwards whereas we i forget if i forget if it was episode four or five i think five was the desiree washington one so we've got three more episodes after that Mm. to to just reckon with well our our main character that we kind of liked in some ways he wasn't perfect but we were rooting for him and whatever Uh, (laughs) i see a horrible monster rapist and and again I don't know for sure that that's what mike tyson was that he actually raped her but on the show they did not create they did not leave a lot of room to wonder on the show. We're told this guy raped Desiree Washington and now go back to sort of rooting for him to, for three episodes. I will say, yeah. I guess now, now that it's over and we saw how it was all framed, I understand more than ever why Mike Tyson was, was pissed about this show. being. There. I agree. That was my thought too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all right. To finish off, it is time for my top five list. Uh, last week, you set me the challenge of listing five boxes I took a while to come around to, but who eventually convinced me of their quality. And I had a hard time at first with this list. As I mentioned last week, I, I could have done a much easier job of rattling off guys who'd underperformed relative to my expectations. <laughs> right. But I did get there eventually. Um, my five boxes actually include three who are active. Okay. Um, the two retired boxes are Hall of Famers. One of the other three is a complete lock for the Hall. Uh, one is too early to tell, and one will probably miss out. Um, interestingly, three are British. Make of that what you will. Hmm. Um, anyway, here we go. Number five, Danny Garcia. Um, For a long time, I just did not particularly rate Garcia. He seemed an unremarkable boxer to me who happened to have a good chin and a good hook. I I didn't think a lot of his wins over the likes of Ashley Theophane or Kendall Holt. I wrote off his win over Amir Khan as being a bit fluky and more due to, you know, Khan's weak chin more than anything. 
I fully expected him to get steamrolled by Lucas Matisse. I even found excuses for that win. It, it took a while, and I'm not exactly sure when, but it did take a while. And now I have really come to appreciate him. And we've talked about him on the podcast and, and what a high opinion I do now have of him. He's a very good technical boxer. He's got a good left hand, yes, but he's got so much more besides. Um, he's really strong mentally. He's, you know, he's really never in a dull fight. There's only one fight he's been in in which he wasn't competitive. Um, he, as we've discussed, he he won't make the haul most likely. But gosh, at a few rounds gone his way against mm-hmm. Keith Thurman or Sean Porter, maybe he would have done. Uh, I really feel like I deeply underestimated Danny Garcia early and I I feel like I really greatly much more greatly appreciate him now yep great pick he's uh, I have him at number three and uh, it's interesting just that when I first thought of the assignment he didn't occur to me at all it wasn't until I was sort of carefully trying to think through fighters from my 25 years or so following boxing that I was looking through various lists of names to make sure I wasn't missing anyone. And then, and I stumbled across and was like, Oh yeah, Danny Garcia has got to be on this list. How did I not think of him? But yeah. So, I mean, and, and you, you hit the key point was that like the Amir Khan knockout, I was just so convinced he closed his eyes and winged one and got lucky and he's not actually that good. And then eventually you have to say, you know what? Danny Garcia was pretty darn good. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Number four, Joe Joyce. I pretty much dismissed Joyce out of hand early on. Didn't see it. Didn't get it. Yeah, the guy had a punch. He was strong. He's slow as molasses. Uh, I felt reasonably strongly. Um, We talked about it in an advance that Daniel Dubois would beat him. That was the fight that I began to change my perception of him, but it was really not fully until his most recent fight that it was any doubt I had has really been erased by that win over Joseph Parker. Mm. Yeah. I wasn't wrong. He is slow as molasses. <laughs> um, and he is strong, but he also has a surprisingly subtle ability to control the real estate in the ring, to put his opponents in difficulty. He's very relaxed in there. He doesn't use any unnecessary energy. And, and that I think is what enables him to slowly take control of a contest. And he is now at the point where, as you and I have discussed, that at the very least, he's an extremely tough out for anyone in the heavyweight division right now and and really has done enough to make the big four in the division the big five. Yeah, so good good pick, and I had him just outside my top five as okay. basically my, my top honorable mention probably. Um, and the only reason I didn't put him in is just that I – it, it, he hasn't totally proven it yet that it could right. turn it could turn out that we you know he loses his we right his he, <laughs> right that he loses it well we we won't have been right he's a, at least gone farther than i initially yeah. thought but it still may turn out that he's nothing special and doesn't get remembered as as any kind of a great heavyweight and so that was my hesitation in putting him in the list is that he's exceeded my expectations but i'm not uh, but he hasn't uh, cement. He hasn't cemented it yet, so that's why he's just outside my list. Fair enough. Um, we're now getting into the embarrassing territory uh, with these next three. For... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number three, Joe Calzaghe. Yeah. Um, look, I picked Jeff Lacey to knock him out. I wasn't alone. I know, especially on this side of the pond. Uh, but in hindsight, it seems like an absolutely ludicrous notion. I did not like the way that Calzaghe threw his punches. I didn't like the way that he didn't swivel and get real talk behind them. They seemed almost slappy punches to me, which of course was easy to me to say. I wasn't, I wasn't taking them. He just didn't impress me. I thought it was 
all hype and I thought as soon as he faced a a real world-class boxer that he would get exposed and well there he is he's retired undefeated he's in the hall of fame so how stupid do I look now um <laughs> I got Kalzagi totally wrong and I'm not afraid to admit it yep same here I had him at number four and absolutely I really don't have a lot of analysis to add you you nailed all, okay. all the key things for me it's the the, the, the arm punching especially I was just like uh, someone's going to expose this guy. And I picked Lacey to beat him. And I may even have picked Kessler to beat him. And uh, he just kept proving me wrong until finally, by the end of his career, I was convinced. Yeah, I definitely picked Kessler to beat him. Definitely. And that may have been his best performance, actually, I yeah. think. Um, number two, I hope for your sake, he isn't on your list because I'm not proud of this at all, um, is Andre Ward. I didn't initially see what the fuss was about at all. I, I just didn't see him as special. I knew that he'd come out of the Olympics and I knew that he was hyped, but I watched him and I was just, I don't know. When the Super Six was announced, as I believe I've mentioned before, I picked Arthur Abraham to win, which is a whole other story. And I didn't have Ward anywhere even close. And I remember Kevin Ioli in a column beforehand picked Andre to win the tournament and said that he would establish himself as a genuine bona fide star and, and would show how special he was and I thought he was on something to be honest I just did not understand it I guess to be fair the things that Ward did well weren't always screamingly obvious you had to have an understanding somewhat of of what was going on in the ring to understand what it was that Ward did there came a point of course where it was just monstrously obvious of, of just how good, how accomplished, how cerebral, but also how down and dirty Ward could be. The way that he, first of all, neutralized what his opponents would do well. And then when he'd kind of done that, then he'd start turning it on and, and doing what he needed to do to take over his, his fights. And it's not just what he did to Karl Frotch, uh, not just what he did to Sergei Kovalev, but it's also Kessler, Edison Miranda, Alan Green, and indeed Abraham not only was he in fact not kind of an overhyped olympian as i originally thought he's actually one of the very best fighters of his generation i really whiffed on this one <laughs> all right well good for you for admitting it i have uh, no such shame and regret regarding andre good. Ward. I, I i was pretty convinced of his quality sit from the moment i saw him in the olympics and did i predict him to win the super six no i mean i i was i was as surprised as everyone else was when he came out and, and beat Mikkel kessler to kick off that tournament but for the most part throughout his career i was i was a believer from from day one so i have uh, no no such shame over Andre Ward. I'm I'm pleased for you. If if we had two people on this podcast who had doubted Andre Ward, then well, <laughs> right. I'm not sure how he would have justified having it. But number number one, another guy I got wholly wrong, Tyson Fury. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw a guy who went viral for punching himself in the face during a fight. I saw a big heavyweight who got dropped by Steve Cunningham, for God's sake. Yep. I gave him no chance against Vladimir Klitschko, and then somewhat wrote off that win. As, as, as ascribing it to Klitschko being done. Honestly, I don't think it was until the first Deontay Wilder fight that I was really convinced of just what a good boxer um, uh, Tyson Fury could be. And it was then, I think, only with the second fight that I realized that he could be so much more than such a good boxer. And now, obviously, not only is he a slam dunk for the Hall of Fame, and not only will I absolutely vote for him on the first ballot, he, and we've we've talked about this before. He is so unique in terms of his size and his skills and his strength and his chin and his recovery. 
that it is very hard to pick any box heavyweight boxer from history who you would absolutely categorically say oh yeah that guy beats tyson fury yeah yeah he's got to be on the list for a lot of people um because he just he he's my number two uh a okay. fine pick for number one uh he's just he appeared so clumsy and oafish you just couldn't have imagined that he would be able to put it together the way he did yeah. against the top level guys. And, uh, it, it, you know, I know, I know Emmanuel Stewart saw it coming and said, uh, this guy is going to be one of the future, future he top did, guys. Yeah. He? yeah. He saw it. I assumed he was out of his mind. Uh, I, I just did not see it for the reasons you said. And, uh, and then even when he proved it against Klitschko, I kind of was like, eh, I guess maybe it's just a bad style thing. He's clever, but he's still, you know, even after that, it took me a while to be convinced that, uh, yeah, we're actually looking at an all time great heavyweight here. Yeah, indeed. And, and I only had a couple, like I said, I really struggled with this. And I, I think maybe, you know, if I thought about it some more, I'd be able to think of a, a couple more. But the only other ones that kind of came into my head were I was slow to recognize Bernard Hopkins. Okay. Um, kind of on the Andre Ward level. That's that's right. that's a, that's a bad one. Another bad one was Ricardo Lopez. Hmm. Um, and also in terms of like guys who maybe in that Joe Joyce category that we're not quite yet sure how good he's going to be. Devin Haney. I hmm. I'm still not. I'm still not wild and excited by Devin Haney, but I have come to appreciate that he, I just didn't think there was very much there at all. But as we talked about when you, when you gave me the, the, the assignment to pick like the best fights among the four princes or thereabouts, I only picked Haney for one of them because I didn't feel compelled to watch him in anything, but gosh, if he ended up running the table against all this, wouldn't be surprised either i think devin haney's a much much better fighter than i initially gave him credit for okay interesting so um i have a few that you didn't name including my number one didn't make your list either because maybe you just just didn't think of him but more likely i guess you were not as convinced he sucked as i was and he turned out not to suck and i'm talking about <laughs> deontay wilder that i was convinced for a very deep point into his career that uh, that, that this guy just has some of the worst technique I've ever seen. Someone's going to expose him. I, 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 eventually I came around on, okay, the power's there, but Luis Ortiz is going to expose this guy. Well, he kind of came close, but he didn't beat him. And then yeah. he still has only lost to Tyson Fury. And, uh, and, and whether he is or is yeah. not a Hall of Famer, he has so far exceeded any expectations I had for him that I, I put Deontay Wilder at, at number one. Um, and then just the, the other ones uh, that that uh, I considered, actually at my number five we haven't mentioned yet, was Canelo Alvarez, just that um, I was a little slow. Yeah. With the, yep. the, the, the wobble against Jose Miguel Cotto, and yep. then it, it just... You know, by the time he got to the elite level, I wasn't selling him too terribly short uh, anymore. But it's still I was a little slow to get there on Canelo Alvarez when clearly the Mexican fans yeah. were all the way in already. Um, and then uh, a couple of other ones. Um, Costa Zoo, for some reason, I just I didn't mm. see it. I didn't see it until it was too late. I finally believed in him heading into the fight with Ricky Hatton. Isn't that isn't that always <laughs> the way it works? Um Adonis Stevenson is another one who I, I kind of thought wasn't anything all that yeah. special. And, and he just kept winning and defending his title successfully and knocking people out for a while when I was convinced he was just going to have a short 
uh, short reign. And the last one that I'll throw in there, an active guy. Um, and it's not so much that I doubted him, but uh, but I, 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 well, I'll just say who it is, and and you'll know uh, where, where I'm coming from. Sebastian Fundora. I just thought maybe he was, you know, more oddity than than actual quality prize fighter, and I've had to uh, reverse my take on that. Interesting. The Deontay Wilder thing is interesting because I don't think that my position on him is actually really any different from yours. And so it's interesting that I didn't think to put him in there because, yeah, sometimes I've had to marvel at the fact that he's only ever lost to Tyson Fury and his technique is still terrible. We weren't wrong about that. But God, the man has like the heart of a lion. Uh, and of course, my goodness, that punch. Um yeah, I, I, and yeah, if Fury, if Fury were to step away again, I wouldn't bet against him beating everybody else. So that's a really valid one. It, it, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I still haven't come around on his technique because his technique is terrible. <laughs> yeah. But what he's done with, but what he's done with it is magnificent. I think you're, you're absolutely right there. That was a really good call, Deontay. All right. All right, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with not much in the way of fights to recap, but at least we have a good one to preview. Uh, that's Regis Progray against Jose Cepeda. Until then, thanks very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>